and a one and a two and a one, two, three, four. Hello. Welcome to Industry Talk. I am Ethan Strauss of, well, the Substack. Uh, and I am with Ryan Glassfield, <laughs> the New York Post, the one, the only, who uh, I just learned is in a feud with a shock jock. Is that the case, Ryan? Is, is this is this true? Yeah, um, although I I think I got a checkmate in it, and he invited me to go on a mm. show in studio next week, and so I I obviously he's going to you know poke and prod and whatever, but um, you know it's like David and Goliath, except this time David won. Mm, okay, well we will we will get into that. I, I want to get a little, into it. I don't think we need to lead with it though. We, yeah, maybe, maybe it might be the thing of the moment. But okay, okay, we, we'll 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 put it in the middle of this show sandwich, um, along with, uh, for instance, the Jim Harbaugh pro life stand that he took uh, quite publicly, uh, and also uh, the MLB, some of the shenanigans around the All Star Game, how the MLB is just bleeding attendance and whether it means that we are just in a new era for sports post pandemic and it's a permanent condition. There are a range of topics. Um, Also, I wrote about uh, the Adam Schefter thing. And I think in some ways, this chat was the genesis of the article. I do want to start with Harbaugh, though, because I think, Ryan, that my take on this, and I would suspect possibly your take on this, is not what people might think it is. I, I have not discussed it with you at all, right? No. Well, I don't um, know what people would think my take is on it, but <laughs> um, we, we are, you know, generally progressive, and we grew up on the coast, but mm. I don't think that we have the same opinion on someone expressing no. pro-life views as much of our brethren well, in the coastal sports I'll, Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll explain what I mean by how it might not be what is expected. And I'll give some expository on it. How uh, Jim Harbaugh, college football coach, former Niners coach, uh, was at a pro-life event and came out. He knows very... speaker. He wasn't just like a bystander. No, no, he just didn't happen to be there uh, in, in attendance. He, he planned it. Yeah, he 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 really came out, and he it's very anchored in his uh, in his Christian faith. And um, when I saw that this morning uh, across the transom, I assumed he was going to get crushed. And I think in some ways conservative sports media, or I should just say outkick is almost prime for that kind of response, right? It's part of the, it's part of the ecosystem where, because the media is so uh, conformist and angry and dismissive of opinions outside of a narrow band, that's kind of outkicks raison d'etre and why they exist. So they're going to respond and they're going to write the post they did about how, uh, you know, he, he got crushed by blue checks. But when I looked across the landscape, I didn't really see that happening so much. And I found that interesting. It's almost a dog that that didn't bark where. Yeah, I mean, there was Jamel Hill, but I didn't see any criticism organically. Like I saw she got retweeted into my timeline. Um, But uh, yeah, I didn't see this vociferous backlash that you might have expected. I really don't know why um, there wasn't this time. Well, Um, that's, that's, that's the thing. It's kind of, we don't always come to this show folks with a solid take. Sometimes it's just, well, that's kind of, that's sort of interesting. That's sort of odd. I, I don't know what to make of that. The theory I would throw out there is that, there is still a, a respect for religion. And if somebody seems deeply committed, um, even though there is dismissiveness towards that, even if Stan Van Gundy is just tweeting vitriol every day at people who believe in God, which is frankly kind of weird. And I guess it's uh, it's his take on things, but it's very odd, but whatever. Uh, that exists. There's still sort of a sense of, regardless of how people feel on this issue of, well, you know, he's got firmly committed beliefs and we're not going to change his mind on it. And I don't think we're going to get him to apologize for it. So what's the point? I, I found it. it, it a, yeah. um, do you think there might have been uh, some type of understanding that like amplifying it negatively would in a weird way help him? Because I think that the stance that he take 
that he took is a lot more popular in, you know, those high school households where you have to go in and talk to the mom and dad, like, and win them over just as much as you're winning over the recruit. And clearly that's all going to change now because uh, <laughs> the bidding is just, you know, out in the but, open. And so yeah, the, the live golf promise of- is going to... Outweigh in many cases, you know, connectivity with the coach. But um, yeah. I, I think that these football families across America, um, in you know, I don't, they're, you know, they're not recruiting NFL are you, players are you out the, of like New York City or LA nearly as much as um, the Rust Belt and SEC country. And so well, that, that could be a benefit, but maybe I'm just so naive that. I don't think it was done with that in mind. I just think he firmly... No, no, it wasn't. Yeah. He wasn't cynical, but I wonder if people... I don't think it... Maybe it wasn't cynical that people realized that bashing him for it and amplifying it would only mm. help them. But um, I do think that maybe people know that. Yeah. I, I just found it to be a curious dog that didn't bark. And I feel though... I, I, I feel as though it's this strange thing where... You often want the fodder of that if you're if you're outkick. You want it to be a more extreme reaction, even if well, you're against they those got people. The Jamel Hill debate, so like that. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I would make a, an analogy about it. Yeah, I, I I would make an analogy to AOC protesting um, the Supreme Court. I think it was today. Her pretending One, to be handcuffed was yes. just like elite <laughs> performance artistry. Yes, along with Ilhan Omar, where an AOC is is acting as though she's handcuffed, and it's almost this strange thing where you don't want to completely be overrun by your enemies, but you want there to be enough resistance that you look brave fighting them, which is very human, and maybe we can fall prey to it on occasion. I try to, I try to at least when I'm writing something, I try to figure out, okay, is this actually a thing, or am I just anticipating what I'm arguing against, I, and maybe I'm not being all that cogent and explaining it. But I just thought that this was one where the, the upshot that was interesting was more the absence of the backlash against Jim Harbaugh, as opposed to the backlash against Jim Harbaugh. That's my muddled take on the whole thing. Yeah. I, it's, it's, I mean, there's no way that, you know, that you can't, how, how can you have like an around the horn debate, like a show that scores Mm. the argument on, um, somebody arguing with a fundamentalist like religious person about abortion there's just <laughs> I mean I, I would love to see that show I really to be like, clear. hate making jokes about um, the, these deep topics but I, know. Uh, I, I just there, there's no you can't win the argument you know no I mean not not with that one I mean people will speak to their particular corner um and uh amplify the hypocrisy of their out group for their in group and it will just go on and on but no you're not going to you're not going to win that particular argument so that's just starting out there with a little bit of uh let's get in the whole thing Ryan you're a nice guy what is with <laughs> what is with these enemies you're making what what's going on man you know uh, what, what, well you know the it, it's uh so this Minahane thing, I guess I got to really explain it. So I uh, I wrote a profile on Jared Krabis, former Barstool guy, go, went to DraftKings. He's just, like, obsessed with the Red Sox, like Shams and Schefter and Woj and Rappaport are obsessed with getting their scoops. Like, he mm. watches every game. He, like, took a radio to prom, etc. And... I guess, like, he exaggerated that, like, he said he had to go to prom because he was class president in the profile. Um, Mm. But he didn't want to because there was some April Red Sox game that he had to watch. And Mm. so Kirk uh, Minahan, who former EEI... some shitty sequel to Goodwill Hunting, but continue. You were saying. (laughs) Kirk Minahan... Former EEI morning drive host, very talented broadcaster. Um, he he's not known for being nice. Uh, <laughs> I, let me let me get like word cloud because I'm on the West Coast and you have more of a sense of who these people are. Like I just sort of look and I go, 
angry Boston radio kind of guy universe, and that's all I know. He, you know, he's, it's fair he's or unfair. smarter and more talented than that like video from today um, displayed. I don't, mm. I don't know what like got him in that mood, but he wasn't in a good mood or whatever today. So, yeah. um, you know, my dad listened to him a lot when he was on EEI because my dad driving to work would listen to that show or Mike and Mike, two very similar shows and content. And, mm. um, no, they're very different, but I see. I just agree. Cause I had no idea. So, um, they, so anyways, when he had me on the spot to kind of make fun of me for putting, um, Carabas's, um, exaggerations and without being skeptical of them, I was just like, um, first of all, my dad's a big fan of yours. So I'll get a kick out of this. And then mm. I just played it off like, oh, I appreciate you keeping me honest. I should have done a better job fact checking that. You're right. And, you know, mm. I played into his bit. I didn't let him kind of, he, he, when he has like these, he he he's used to like Boston Globe, like very serious mm. people as foils. And I'm I don't know. I don't take myself that seriously. I got work hard, but whatever. He can make fun of me. I don't care. And so, <laughs> at the end of it, he goes, "Oh, and um, you should write a puff piece about me, and I'll, I'll go to lunch with your dad." And so. Mm. I'm going to Boston next week for a Brewers Red Sox series, not to brag. And so I messaged <laughs> his producer who had like booked me for the show a couple months ago. I was like, Hey, I'm coming out there this weekend. Would you and Kirk like to get breakfast with my parents and I, when I'm out there and mm. this is like a couple weeks ago. Um, but that By I the guess way, a delightful invite. You know, whether you want to do it or not, but you can continue. Yeah, I, I like meeting people in person yeah. and, you know, it's, it's fine. And so then he just goes on this rant about how I wanted to use having breakfast with him under the auspices of a story and like, as like a way to wedge my dad getting to meet him in, which it's like, mm -hmm. um, first of all, you suggested that you get lunch with them. And yeah. second of all, the guy, the producer goes, I, I just said, do you want to get breakfast? He goes, would this be a first story? And my response was, I, um, I'd want to do one at some point because he has these like very passionate fans. Like he's, he doesn't yeah. have the widest audience. It's not part of my take or anything, but he's got like several thousand diehard listeners and they'll like go to a a retreat like to go ice fishing in northern Maine huh. or something with him. And so I was like, I want to write about one of those, but I don't think like writing about going to breakfast with him would be as good of a story. And I should be a, with my editors because of as I've said before, I don't get to just decide what I write about. Um, mm. They, I, if I really want to do something and I fight for it or whatever, they usually let me, but I can't make promises um, without consulting them. And so mm. he just was like, yeah, so he's trying to get breakfast with me. It's a weird request. Fuck your dad. I don't care about your dad. And I'm like, so I just quote tweeted him with like, it took me like literally 45 seconds to find, but yeah. oh, it also started this morning where like a friend of my dad's emailed me and him and it's like, don't listen to the Kirk show today. And I'm like, why did he go after me or something? He's like, yeah, very mean. Yeah, so I, I love that. Oh God. The people like in our lives. Well, one second. I got it. I got to interrupt right there. Like, the people in our lives who are just they, they pump this poison into our heads that somebody said something about you and they act as though they're helping in some way. I've always he's like, don't listen to it. And it's like, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have even known about it. Oh. Um, <laughs> like I was I don't sit there waiting for his podcast to drop. I like I think he's very good at what he does and I like admire his talent and I will mm. never be as um, good of a broadcaster as he is. And he does have, like, he, he's like kind of the Roger Ebert of character judgment. But huh. um, anyway, it's like, it was just like very mean to me for really no <laughs> reason. And I am, like, I tried to find it, but then the, like, the first 15 minutes of his show today was like him, 
and the producer talking through how they were going to like throw a pizza party for subscribers and then it was too complicated and then they canceled the idea and I was just like I can't listen to this for an yeah. hour to get to the part where he makes fun of me like it's just <laughs> I, I don't there's always so many hours in the day luckily um, yeah. they isolated it as a tweet so I didn't have to find it in the haystack <laughs> and it was like literally I just it took me then 45 seconds to go into iTunes they were nice enough to like in the show description for May 26th when I was on say what the timestamp so, I, I was on was at so I found it very fast recorded just... a video on my phone and I was like hey <laughs> you suggested a meal with my dad and now you're ripping me for asking to do it with me involved as well when I'm going to be in your town. I, I'm um, trying to see if I can follow the brief summary of I was explaining what happened. Um, a Boston shock jock, talented though he may be, uh, offered to have breakfast with you and your father. He offered lunch, not breakfast. Lunch, and then lunch, I suggested sorry. breakfast. And you suggested breakfast. And then presented it to his audience as though this was an offer you had made out of the blue and therefore you're being creepy or weird. And that I was like sex. trying to like use, hey, I'll write a story about you if you'll meet my dad, which like, I mean, I don't know. That's not really a trade I would make. No, no, no. That's, um, that's fascinating. I'm, I am so interested in these uh, the people who, who do this job. I, I wonder know. about the pathologies they have. I the process of how he got angry about this when it mm. was really a general thing that he initially suggested. Um, and maybe we'll spend hours diagnosing the blow by blow. But I think like, and, and the producer totally like mischaracterized our DM exchange to him. He, mm. he said, I said that I didn't want to write a story. That's not what I said. I said I didn't want to story, write a story about breakfast because that wouldn't be that interesting. I want to write an interesting story. And by the way, this mm. would be like in the calculus of how much time something takes me versus how many people click on it. This mm. would not be a win for me in like hours spent on the New York Post payroll. This would no. be me writing a story that I think is interesting and then trying to make up the page views with like salacious stuff later. Yeah. I, maybe it'd be good for a sub stack uh, for a, a committed audience, a small audience that would be to see it. But I just find it all so odd. I always wonder about the pathologies that are needed to be one of these people who can kind of channel harsh emotion in some of these northeastern markets and they seem to be i'm overgeneralizing perhaps but they seem to be uh the not the uh the prickly people a little bit unstable there are frequent breakups it seems they're always whenever they get catch lightning in a bottle and they're a, they're a crew and they've got a resonance they always break up i mean god we might just stumble in the whole uh Jesus and Marrow, is that how to pronounce it correctly? Jesus, like I think. Jesus, yeah. Well, I should have. Yeah, Jesus and Marrow. Um, you know, because they broke up recently and they're they're their own thing. I mean, okay, okay. I mean, can we wiggle to that? I know that wasn't planned, but can we go? <laughs> sure. That? I don't you know, they um so that they had an interesting path. So they were on, you know, MTV two is where they initially came to like Internet popularity. I thought it was if anybody Viceland. remembers MTV Two. I thought it was Viceland. Was there? No, thing. that was they had an MTV Two show before that. Ah, called like the the like Bodega Boys or something. And yeah, um, and I think and I think they had a podcast. And the genesis of the podcast is they had funny Twitter accounts, and they were both from New York, and they had that sense of humor, and they hit it off, and it became a podcast, and it turned into more of a TV product. And uh, for those who do not know, I mean, they're sort of a, a cult sensation and we're on Showtime, but they have broken up. I don't so understand. The, the um, yeah. Viceland thing, this is interesting, I think maybe to a few people. That show was created by Eric Rideholm, who was the creator of PTI, Highly Questionable, and High Noon. And he yeah. also took over Around the Horn and runs that. So yes. it was... Um, 
he he so like if it looks a little bit like you know the PTI sensibility with the topics on the side, that's because it was made by um, that person. It, yes. it didn't stick with them when it moved from Viceland to Showtime, well, but by that point they were kind of like established as you know internet woke folk heroes. Yeah, and you know their trajectory I think is an interesting one. I don't know everything that went into why they broke up. Um, I, I think that will be uh, mostly known to them. Uh, but I do, I it, do think it sounds like been... Jesus might have like a better job opportunity. That's like the rumors cool. in my text threads. Well, I think me, my, my main point would be the show was not a success at the level they were advanced to. I don't want to call it a Peter principle lane because maybe that's unfair. Um, but I think something that happens in media is that you're almost fit to the environment. You know, if you succeed in a certain environment, then you, you are a good fit for that environment. Often. Has I, anything internet popular then gone and got good television ratings? Broad, because... Broad City. Broad City was probably the last one. Um, in and, sports or like I guess this is not really sports but well, um, the reason I bring it up is that I think it is a it, it signifies the end of an era or at least the end of a trend where everybody in Hollywood uh, was looking for an internet popular thing like it was a, a minor league player really popping off and then trying to scale that up but this is the issue of radio people work way better on TV than internet people do for some reason for some reason. But I think it's this, this thing of uh, you're fit to your medium. I'm fit for Substack. That's, that's the right place for me. That's the right place for me to do well. If I start getting some heat on me and then it's, well, you should do what you do it at, at ESPN. Like, that's not going to, it's not going to work. It's just not going to function the same way. And it's not right for a broader audience. And so I, I just remember with, uh, with them, they go to Showtime, you know, a show where where the most popular show, I believe, I mean, a channel with the show is Billions, where people wink to the idea of uh, hedge fundsters or whatever. Uh, their first guest is AOC for that first episode. And I know this is the least cool advice that you, you can give in media. Uh, it would be soundly rejected and mocked if you were to say it. But I remember thinking. It's probably not a good idea to lead off there. You know, po politicians, they are uh, they are always sort of fake at some level. It's weird when you're cheerleading them. I mean, we all sort of prefer certain politicians to other politicians. And it just seemed to me that was that was the moment I thought it probably wasn't going to work. I know that's a take where if you said that on Twitter at the time, you would be absolutely uh, crushed, crushed in the way. Eviscerated. Yeah, eviscerated. But I looked at that and I thought, yeah, that's not that's not going to work. And it kind of makes them cringe, you know, when you're when you're sort of gate crashers. But you're and yeah, it's a it's a politician who's different than the uh, average politician. But I also thought about it in terms of is this the Showtime audience is the Showtime audience into, I don't know, kind of performative socialism for your first episode. I don't know. I don't think so. And. <laughs> In the end, it didn't fit. And I don't think that's an indictment of them at all. It's just, it wasn't the thing for I, that thing. Yeah, I mean, they're fit for, really, Twitter and YouTube. And any relevance that they had came not from, like, the the television show, but clips then getting d redistributed on social. And... That's not the way to build, sustain television success. But, no. you know, you know who in like the the Showtime execs, like a bunch of them, I'm sure, enjoyed basking in their presence and going yeah, they were to cool. parties and saying like, we booked Jesus and Miro, like yes. shower yes. us in the best party invitations. And, you know, that like, a lot of decision making gets um, gets driven by how much the decision makers can bask in it in these in crowds, and yeah. so, like, I know we're, we sound like we're being really mean to these guys who, I mean, 
they're very successful. They're very funny. They're very funny guys. I mean, I don't think we would, I don't think we're being mean. I think we're just observing why something didn't fit in, in that particular place. And, um, they're, they're really funny guys. They had talent, they had a committed audience. Um, and it just wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing and it wasn't the kind of audience that would translate to prestige premium cable, I guess. And, uh, to what you're saying, I do. I don't think know if decisions. it would translate to any cable. Like if you put it mm. on MTV, would it translate? If you put it on FX, would it trans? Like I don't know what channel it might have worked on. Uh, yeah, I mean, to, maybe to drive like the, the radio. Look at like what people watch, and it's not stuff like that. And so, like, if there's by the way. The, the people who there, – there's, like, a case to be made that they would have made a lot more money if they had just, like, built their own YouTube channel and digital media mm. network and sold it to, like, a Spotify or something instead of, you know, going yeah. on Showtime. Because the, these – these look at, like, what Alex Cooper made. She got paid, like, $20 million a year or something. Ooh by Spotify to leave Barstool. Like, look at what happened with, like, Joe Rogan, Bill Simmons. Um, the, the like, Dan Levitard and Colin Coward are going to sell their digital media businesses at some point for absolute fortunes. And so mm. I would argue that building, like, your own digital brand supersedes, like, the idea of having like a half hour weekly show on Showtime. Yeah, it didn't work out for either side, it seems. And then you wonder why it happens. I like your theory. We can say that people make decisions for financial reasons, but a lot of the time they just want to be cool. That's what they want. They want what's uh, whatever's going to impress people within their circle. And then they'll rationalize to themselves how it's going to make them money. And to be fair, back in the day, it seems like cool scaled up easier in the 90s, something that was a little underground and uh, had a cult following would be mainstream, but it just doesn't, it doesn't appear that that's the uh, universe. We well, live there's in also anymore. like, you, you can launder stuff at HBO and Showtime because um, they're subscription based. And so, yeah, you know what people watch and what people don't, but you don't really know other than something enormous like Game of Thrones, what mm. is driving people to actually open up their wallets and subscribe it's a little bit science a little bit guesswork and so these executives have more rope there to um kind of push their own cool but in the aggregate not super popular projects through you know what's not considered cool and is sneakily one of the most successful shows on premium cable is real time uh, with Bill Maher. Um, that's, that's a show that I think because it's really the only place where you can see people mix it up and you're not sure how a conversation is going to go, that it is, uh, it has had this longevity to it. Um, even though it is not, it is not considered the cool thing, but it seems to endure and you can get over a million people on a Friday night, uh, which is, uh, not easy when you have so few TVs in America as, as HBO does relative to the other channels. So I'm free associating there, but uh, that that one succeeded as a format that isn't necessarily dissimilar to, to Days of Samara. I'm going to screw that name up <laughs> again and again. I apologize. I might, you might be getting it right and I might be getting it wrong. I, yeah, like, I, I, I he's even, I've seen him complain about how easy it is and how people get it wrong somehow. Um, and I don't have a good explanation for why I'm, I'm, I'm screwing that one up, but yeah, I think that this, this is a, a trend that kind of came and went where, uh, what, what was cool on the smaller scale and especially cool on Twitter that executives thought they could turn it into something. I'm not seeing that happen anymore. I think that is, there, there has been a pause on that and I don't know what is going to replace it. What's going to be in that vacuum, but that. I don't see people trying to do that as much. Um, and it's just not the kind of wellspring uh, that it once was potentially. Uh, we'll see. They, we'll see. Um, I, I, I want to get to yeah. the Schefter thing. I want to make sure we give that enough time. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I, I didn't know about getting to it. It felt a little self-indulgent, 
But uh, yes, uh, you can do the expository because then I can understand it from your perspective, this article I wrote on an article. <laughs> okay, so here's me talking about Ethan's article. Uh, <laughs> yes. They uh, basically... Um, Schefter succeeded because he's relentlessly nice to people and he doesn't set up any boundaries. He is always online, always ready to work. Like if something pops up at like one in the morning and, you know, he thinks that he's going to get beat on it, he is going to like get out of bed and hop onto Twitter and get it out there and then like file it to the news desk, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, um, what, what Ethan wrote about is that people our age are starting to like get really burnt out by the fact that your phone can always buzz, you know, pretty much between 8 AM and 10 or 11 PM seven days a week and there's a lot of people where if your boss asks you to do something at that time, you just got to fucking do it. Yep. And, um, like people are getting burnt out about it. There's a little bit of a backlash and that's driven a lot of like the work from home trends where it's like, well, if I'm always going to be working, then I'm not going to have to shower, get on nice <laughs> clothes, groom myself, yeah. spend a half hour to over an hour in a car or like transfer the subway or take buses that in most cities in America yeah. are if running you, on time. Right if if now. you're going to force me to always be working, even when I'm home, then I'm just not leaving <laughs> is yeah. I think the, the, basically the compromise that has been worked out. Um, and so Schefter is the winner in that game because he never says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. It's Christmas or I have dinner plans or like, you know, today, like my wife and I are going to the theater. I don't want to come on and talk about Deshaun Watson. Sorry. And yeah. he never does that. He always, every time they ask him to work, he just gets on and goes to work. And so uh, his ability to never turn off has brought him great rewards. Like he's making $9 million a year. But if yeah. you're never working, and this is a philosophy Ethan and I have, what good is making $9 million a year if you can't just go to an island, turn your phone on Do Not Disturb, and like have a bunch of like Four Seasons people give you rum out of like yeah. a pineapple? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it sucks as a lifestyle. And I think... There's a lot of oh boo hoo because a lot of people's jobs suck and they don't it doesn't pay them millions of dollars. But I think we have some insight into how miserable it is. And I can say I would not do it for that amount of money. I just I just wouldn't. If you, if no, you tell I me that's my either. next 20 years, if that's my next 20 years, and of course, I could never actually pull it off. I wouldn't be as good at it as he is. Yeah, let's I, you know, say, I'd be tired and I'd like. I would be like, I don't want to take Adderall in order to accomplish that. <laughs> yeah, but if you could... I, I'm not me, accusing him of that. Maybe he does, no. maybe he doesn't, but I, think he's just I would need to. I think he's just one of those naturally energetic guys. And so, I, in, in some ways, I'm, I, I am in admiration of the full commitment and the work ethic. I do find work ethic inspiring, but I'm trying to convey a distinction between working uh, working hard versus, as they call it, lurking hard, where you're never off the clock and you're always available and you're in a state of hypervigilance. And I think we've moved from one to the other. I don't think it's such a bad thing that sometimes if you're in a situation, if you're at a startup, you're just working balls to the wall. You have to put in the full effort and just get the thing off the ground. I think that's part of how great things get built. But this this new hyper vigilance that's been enabled by uh, the social media technology, and I think most especially Slack. I think Slack channel is a sneaky emiserator of the professional class masses. Um, I think it, it well email you... and text too. It's all the same whether whatever platform it's on. 
I think slack is unusually bad. Um, and I haven't formulated a theory as to why, but there's something to its efficiency and the rate at which it creates little balkanizations within a company that make it its own unique kind of hell. But um, I, I think that there's something uh, to the way things have gone that is punishing us psychically. And it sounds soft to complain about, but it's a real thing. And it's been a revelation on a personal note to just be able to control my clock and be able to choose when I work and discover, oh, my God, there are weeks where I can work crazy long hours and I still have time with my family because I'm not caught in that sort of hypervigilance that I used to have. And a lot of people are just caught in that caught in that loop. And I think optimistically, if you're, we're in a situation where everybody hates the uh, status quo and the status quo isn't even obviously successful business wise, then maybe there's an opportunity to turn it around and reverse some of these uh, some of these shitty yeah, trends. You, you made the point that like ESPN works like this now. It didn't work like this 10 years ago. Way yeah. more people watched when it seemed like it was a job that everybody like really the Chris Berman ESPN the Chris Berman ESPN of just get a guy with a few LBs and a love of the sport and a good voice talking about the sport it seems like that might do better than all of the bells and whistles and constant reactivity that they have uh, opted for but everybody for a while to connect it to uh, the days of Samara Jesus Samara never going to get it right who's to Uh, say who's to say but to connect it to the sort of idea of chasing Twitter's tail, um, you know, a lot of companies went that way. And I think it made sense at a certain point. It seemed like the future, um, but maybe we're in a we're at a point post pandemic where we need to take stock and see if these are the best business practices. I know one thing, you know, the thing I know for certain is that they do. It does make people miserable and they hate it. The thing that's less certain is whether that misery is connected to a worse product. I would argue yes, but I would be curious what you might think, and I'd be curious if anybody has any questions about anything and wants to be in the queue. Uh, it's tough because you know ESPN for a long time had a monopoly on highlights. You even go back to before the internet when um, you were, uh, you either had to watch Sports Center at night or you had to wait till the newspaper hit your door the next morning to figure out who won the game, and then. Yeah. Um, the internet came and you could check scores all the time, but the video buffered so slow that like watching, like, you know, you used to have to like download videos and then watch them on like real player. And then there was like a 50, 50 shot. It wouldn't even work. And so for like, you know, the first 15 or whatever years of the internet, I'd say like 1996 to 2010, um, you still needed ESPN and Sports Center for the highlights. Um, yeah. So, and then Twitter really came around, and then they let you start embedding videos in the timeline. And that was when it was like, okay, so why am I watching Sports Center if I already saw the sick LeBron windmill dunk? Yeah. Um, like, and what, yet, what do I need to go there centers- for? And then they kind of pivoted to yeah. constantly reacting to what's on the Twitter wire. Well, and yet the sports centers, despite their diminished importance and role, tended to do better than a lot of these shows they would create, um, just out of the familiarity. I think that you know part of it is that it's very hard to create original content that's based off sports but isn't just a game. It, it, for whatever reason, it just seems like it's the hardest thing to do uh, in, in media and ride home has had some aforementioned successes, but it's very difficult. Yeah. Him him and Jamie Horowitz, the two of them, like other than that, those two who's built like a great sports talk TV show in the last 20 years. Yeah. And Horowitz made like first take, um, undisputed the herd sports nation his and hers. Um, yeah. Which, in some ways, was all the same model done a different way. But it, 30 for 30 was sports programming that was evergreen. And I thought that was very impressive that they created a brand. And I don't think they do enough of looking at history. I mean, that's a whole other topic that 
it's good to connect the sport to its history. And that's something that's lost when you're in a constant state of present shock as, uh, as ESPN is. Um, I, I remember seeing the intro for the Niners Cowboys wildcard game done by CBS. And it's this just incredible montage with a crescendo of all the historic games between those teams leading up to this moment, leading up to this day, this wildcard game, where you're going to see the tradition continue. You don't see that programming as much at ESPN. No, they waste like the time on just, you know, inane conversations instead. Yeah. Um, Inane conversations, tweets, Instagram posts, all that, all that bullshit. And so, um, yeah, I, I just looked at it as an example where I, I quoted your Shams profile because he seems similarly immiserated as Schefter is. And it's funny that they can't even, they can't even hide it almost. No, would... they don't, they're not miserable though. That's the thing. That's why they're so successful is because doing this always on, um, act isn't the right word because it's not an act but like you know oh the the act of always being on Mm. is that's what they want to be doing it just it gives them so much pleasure to not only like be first to like a trade or something but to be first and have Woj or Rappaport not be first yeah well Schefter seemed like it was it was getting heavy it was getting heavy for him as, as an aging man in this game. And he's addicted to the thrill. He's addicted to winning, but he's had some miscues. He's had some missteps and it seems quite fueled by this need to be first on things and the sorts of compromises. I mean, another point that I was making that might be a little particular to the industry um, and not broadly illustrative, but I think is a point worth making about media is that sometimes there are these negative externalities to whatever you're trying to win at. And they wanted to win being first in news. We need to be first in news, first to break the story. Well, that sounds great. And it'd be great if you could just have reporters who break every story. But there are negative externalities to winning that game. You've got to kiss the ass of the agent, especially in the NBA. NFL is a little more based on the team. So you end up just creating bullshit content that doesn't speak to what your audience even wants to know about. And you start talking at your audience from the perspective of the power agents. And I think that it's this thing that's hard to define and it's hard to quantify, but I do think that's been one of the alienating forces, especially of the NBA coverage from ESPN. Um, yeah, it's tough because at the, um, ESPN was so miserable just getting slaughtered by Woj for over the course of it was probably like five years where the, the it was draft like really special. noticeably doing it to them. I'd say yeah. like 2013 to 2018 or so. Does that sound right? Um, sounds sounds about right. And the draft especially is what got in John Skipper's crop. Yeah, and so it was like. ESPN, as they do now, they had an armada of NBA reporters. Most of them were different than the ones they are now, but um, a few holdovers, like, and and Woj is just like a one-man machine, and later Shams joined him at Yahoo, was just demolishing them. Like, Mark Stein um, was the lead NBA insider. He's a very good guy, and he's good on TV, and He's connected in the league to big picture stories, but he did not have the um, drive at the time to just, you know, beat out Woj on all this stuff. It's um, He didn't want to do what you have to do to do that. And that requires, um, as you said, some like, you know, maneuvering amongst the sources and giving them, uh, you know, a say when you don't really want to. And it also requires never taking any leisure time. And 
I'm not like saying this is any knock on Mark's time because you and I would come to this same um, opinion. Well, I, and Mark, I, Mark once told me that he hadn't seen a movie in a theater in over 10 years. This was pre-COVID where people actually did go to movies. So um, he's still working hard. Like I'm not calling him lazy. Like he's successful. <laughs> I, I, but like he, he, Woj was beating him on everything. That's a fact. Like, or most, uh, I I wouldn't say that. I would say Woj was draft dominant, but I think Woj has this thing where if, if you've got the cachet as the leading brand, then it takes a lot to shake it, right? I mean, Woj's uh, Woj's status as the lead breaker of things has not been much changed by screwing up the biggest trade of the season and uh, telling us the draft order would be something it wasn't. Um, I mean, those are two pretty big screw ups and it doesn't really change things. Right. So I, I don't know if that's accurate. It could be, I'm not saying it's not accurate. I'm not trying to be a woe shader. God, I mean, just imagine. Um, but I think, I, I just think it, it's one of those things where once you establish that cachet, um, we will remember it as you were always dominant and that's not necessarily how I recall it going down, though it did go down that way on draft night. And that was the one that really pissed John Skipper off and uh, compelled him to make the moves he made. Yeah, um, it, it's it's not going back anytime soon either. So, I mean, yeah. the the what what it's really come down to, though, is... Like it, it's very nice that at least if ESPN's content isn't as fun for you and I to watch as it might have used to be, at least there's just a million different options all over the internet, and it's just an all-you-can-eat buffet of content that you can never run out of. Yeah. Well, speaking of, I have no good segue to it. There's Danny who keeps popping in the queue and popping out. And I'm too curious. I want to know if he's actually asking a question or if there's something else going on. So let's let's call Danny Danny up to the stage right here, making the next caller. Um, so lazy, hey, July. Up, Not even giving a segue. Danny, how you doing? I'm doing great. And I was cue popping because I, you know, I'm, I had some comments, but then I got interested in what you guys were saying on different topics, so I popped out. Fair, fair. But. Uh, the one thing I don't understand with Woj and Shams and these guys is what the, what's the team's incentive or the on the other side? Why do they all give it to the same pe- person? Like, why wouldn't the Utah Jazz say, "I'm going to let our local beat writer break a story"? Or you want to get it out to the widest possible audience? And yeah. something that um, Ben Strauss, in relation to Ethan, mentioned in the Washington Post story is Woj and Schefter, etc are trading information like they they are telling team stuff privately yes. that the teams don't know Great themselves point. yet yeah there and that is there there is a favor trading going on behind the scenes and it's impressive to me that people get well informed enough to play that particular game of tell me your you know tell me your pick that you're making and I'll tell you the next few picks in the draft that that kind of thing happens um but so I think that to what Ryan is saying, teams have an incentive to trade information to the information broker. And so that's some of it. And then a lot of it, too, is I think that they just choose a guy to go with. We're a Shams team. We're a Woj team. And then you just don't really think about it. And you don't have to wonder about what your protocol is because these teams really need to have some sort of protocol of when stuff gets out. It's got to be a tight ship. They can't have people just running to whoever, you know, they need to have it established that this is who we go to. So you got, you're going to go to somebody, you're going to pick somebody to give the info to. And then I think this was more the case a few years ago, but it could always become the case again in a, uh, speak softly and carry a big stick way is that if you don't play ball, they're more inclined to crush you. Um, Phoenix Sun, the Phoenix Suns, for instance, uh, <laughs> have been in the crosshairs of ESPN. And I don't think, honestly, that they have played ball uh, when it comes to ESPN's reporting and breaking of news. Um, there's a lot more going on there. 
You know, it's not to say that the Robert Sarver stories are illegitimate or that he's a great guy, but I think I do think teams have a sense of if we don't give it to ESPN, we might get the heat from them, and it's just not worth it um, if we're just doing it purely transactionally. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that makes that makes sense. I just wish well, they would uh, deviate a little bit to have a little fun and let someone else make some news. Yeah, somebody, <laughs> yeah, maybe I should just break some news for no goddamn reason. Yeah, that would be fun. I mean, I've been in the position where it's been possible, but yeah, I just—it's not. It's you gotta not come game. with a trade. Mm, that could if be you break a trade, it would blow people's mind. <laughs> it really would. Although, I don't know. It's just nothing. It's nothing that interests. You don't have I, to do it on the regular. Just one like. If you break the Kyrie trade or something, it would just be the funniest thing ever. Yeah. I've had that opportunity just a bit and uh, recently because I do hear things and I'm increasingly somebody who people will talk to knowing that I'm not going to break something. But uh, yeah, it's not – nobody wants to be sweating it out waiting for it to become official. I did not enjoy, for instance, I wrote about how the Warriors tried to trade (laughs) – Steph and Clay back when they were young for Chris Paul, only to have Chris Paul say, no, thank you. I don't want to play for the Warriors. And then Warriors former GM Larry Riley went out on local radio and started crushing me and saying it's not true. I did not enjoy, even though I knew it to be true, I didn't enjoy the time that elapsed between that moment and when Chris Paul said on the podcast, yes, that totally happened. I killed that trade. That's the true story. I mean, that I was had very that happen to me with the Warriors, too. My dad, mm-hmm. back to him, um, <laughs> he, he <laughs> sat on a train next to Bob Myers' brother, who I guess at the time, at least, was an engineer at Apple or something. And he told my dad that the Bucks tried to trade, um, they tried to trade Steph Curry for, I mean, the Warriors tried to trade Steph Curry for Andrew Bogut. And then it, like, the Bucks said, no, we want Monte Ellis. And that's what the trade wound up being. And so I called your guy, Raymond Ritter, on that. He's like, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. And then, lo and behold, <laughs> the Bucks ah, Sorry, it, Ryan. Like, that's completely not true. I don't know I don't even, I don't even know that Bob Myers has a brother. I ah. remember vividly he said that. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, like, later, the, the Bucks brass, I don't remember who, said, yeah, that happened. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it all worked out. Nobody knew that these players were going to turn out great, even though they pretend like they knew. And uh, it's, um, look, I, I, I know a certain uh, call-in uh, host, former player, seven feet tall from a place, let's say it's down under. Former uh, youth. Who would uh, who would say who would say you were correct on that one, Ryan? So uh, thank you, Danny. Let's take a call from Gray. I don't even know if I want to talk about baseball. Is where I'm at. Maybe that's where baseball is right now. I right? have a I have a quick take on it, and but we'll get to it after yeah. Gray. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll take the Gray question first. Gray, how you doing? Can you unmute yourself, sir? There we go. Hey. Oh, that... Are you there, sir? All right. Hello. 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 Do you have a question, Greg? He's muted. Unmute. Better. Yes. yes better. Yes. 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 And no, I just kind of. So tonight it looked like Miles Bridges got those felony charges, mm-hmm. and um. It's so kind of going back from the start. I mean, the story was totally he's a clutch client. The story was buried on the holiday weekend. And so now we're getting that he's getting charged. What if like a year from now, like these things always end up like we see with the NFL all the time, but I feel like it's never kind of the NBA never has had this crossroads. Like Mm. this guy's going to be 25. He'll probably, it'll be some murky situation, but he'll be cleared to play eventually. And he, I mean, agent i mean like a young wing that could do a lot i mean yeah. we had like a hundred million dollar payday so like what's the league gonna do like in a year 
this guy's ready to play. Like, are they ready for, like, like the NFL, they're having this, like, possible legal We have to battle see how the legal sit. Like, just because yeah. he's charged doesn't mean he's convicted. I don't think he's going to sign anywhere until the case is adjudicated. And then if he's convicted of what he's accused of, then he's probably going to have to miss, like, a year. Well, And I then think, I don't know. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's an 18 possible year uh, penalty, which I don't think it will be that. But there are some, I mean, there's some real peril. Uh, not that people are exactly sympathetic to the peril that, that he might be in as a result of, uh, let's say, the alleged actions, but they seem like they did happen. Um, it, it's difficult to know, uh, but to what Gray is saying, I think if teams are convinced that he can provide value, then they'll find a way to rationalize it, and I think the NBA will will quietly let him back in because they probably don't want to have a fight with the players' union over it. Um, but yeah, it is a situation the NFL like he, he seemed to be spiraling for a bit before yes. it in his like kind of public appearances, and yes. so he'd have to reverse that too. Like yeah. sometimes people go into these spirals and never break out of them. And then yep. sometimes people like, you know, Mike Tyson has this huge Renaissance. And so it, it's, you don't, you, you can never know. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. And it's hard to talk about a situation like this as extemporaneously, but um, it, it, in my head it was, well, we don't know if the league will even want him. Uh, and not just because of this potentially grievous act, but also just because it seemed as though he was downward spiraling. And so it's just such a different reality if he's on the other side of this and has seemed to uh, reverse course of whatever demons have gotten a hold of him. Um, but okay, so um, let's let's get your baseball take, Ryan, and maybe we'll head on out of here. So wait, what? I didn't see the story you were referring to. What what's the headline of how much it was written? Dropped? It was written by the very man John Wall Street uh, of Twitter. I like him, Corey. Good guy. Yeah, who He's a uh, listener? Who tweeted that he? I, I'm uh, sorry, he, I missed his story, but I'm glad you're giving it shine. Yeah, it was on Sportico, and it was about how MLB attendance has just been terrible this year. And there are various theories. There are some real worries because the thing people might not get about attendance is that it can spiral. It can spiral up and it can spiral down. And people buy tickets on the premise they can sell tickets uh, if need be. And it almost is like a run on the bank. If you understand that prices are falling, then you're less inclined to buy, which causes prices to fall. So it's not a situation where you just end up with 6% uh, 6% less attendance. Like the, the hit you take financially is going to be far greater once that happens. And um, people came up with their various theories for why this is happening. And, you know, my, my, my question was, because we have seen this to a degree happen in the NBA, I do think the MLB has some problems specific to the MLB, but this is a broader trend. Is this just, how sports are kind of like how baseball has a before the 94 strike and an after the 94 strike um, are sports just not going to be the sort of spectator event post pandemic that they were before. And it's a demarcation. It's a demarcation point that that was the thought I had at least. Well, it's, you know, it's, it should be alarming now because at the like beginning of last MLB season, there was, um, you know, limited attendance in a lot of venues in Chicago, like at Cubs games, the freaking ushers would like walk up and down the aisle, making sure you were wearing your mask outside. Like this is yeah. only a year ago. It seems forever ago, but it made it like very uncomfortable to attend a baseball game. So if their numbers are down from when that was happening, that's problematic. But it um, was it was based on the 2019 comparison was what the anchor oh, okay. the, the article was. And so I'm a little unclear. It's a little bit jumbled as to when things were fully allowed and, and where. But you've you've made the point to me. You've made the observation. You've texted me what the hell's going on at, at these Giants games. There, there aren't a lot of people there. And this is going to bring our conversation full circle. It's 
a little bit connected to what I call the great reclamation of people reclaiming their homes as their offices is you've got all these ballparks, you've got all these arenas, they're downtown, they're based on the premise that people are going to physically go downtown into offices, get out of the office and go to the game. Well, if they're never coming back to the office and they're never coming back to the office in great numbers, there are a lot of implications there, uh, not just for these teams, but for the cities themselves. Yeah, and, not just for the baseball stadiums, you know, the laundromats, the coffee yes. shops, the everything. Yeah. Um, eventually, you know, someone smart is going to play matchmaker between, oh, rent is too damn high for apartments, and oh, half of these office spaces aren't getting used. Oh, we could just repurpose a bunch of this real estate into like mixed use, like residential developments that also have like a little bit of office space and that should sort itself out in the long run. But I would say a massive reason for MLB attendance drop, which is not MLB specific is inflation. Like Mm, it costs 20% more or more than that than it did two years ago. And because we've had 10% inflation now, like two years in a row. And I think in many, like for a lot of households, if you like rely on gas to commute to work, like you're a physical, you're not a office worker, you, 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 your work didn't stop. You can't do it on a laptop, but you have to drive an hour to work. Like that costs a lot more food costs a lot more clothes costs a lot more. Everything that you need costs a bunch more. And wages for a lot of people, you know, some of them have, but a lot of people, wages haven't haven't risen in accordance with that. I can speak to this personally because I make less money than I did two years ago and money is worth 20% less. And so I recognize what like inflation has done to my personal discretionary spending and a baseball game is inherently discretionary spending. And it's not just the ticket to the game, it's parking, it's beer, it's like a $9 hot dog. There's a lot of costs that are associated with it. And if you compound that with like a family of four, if you're figuring out ways where you have to cut 200 bucks here, 300 bucks there, that's going to be quick on the chopping block. And it's not necessarily that the family isn't going to go to baseball games anymore. It's that they maybe used to go to six games in a season, and this year they're going to four. Well, I think that's a great point by you. And a great point by you. Um, (laughs) And speaking to it, because I sometimes feel insulated from some of these dynamics out there in the world, Um, because I'll read about how Biden's approval numbers are in the 30s and are now 538 has him lower than Trump was after January 6th. And yet in my life, it's not as though uh, when I'm walking around the Bay Area, people have turned on Biden and want the alternative, right? So, you know, things are happening out there and I don't necessarily see them all. And because I love the civics tracking bulls, uh, they, they ask a question. It's called family finances versus last year versus one year ago. And the options are gotten worse, stayed about the same and gotten better and unsure. Ryan, what do you think the answer is? How many people of this pie chart of 100 percent pie chart say that their family finances have gotten better? Versus last year. It's got to be under 15%. It's 10%. That yeah. is. So that's a pretty good guess the line by me. Pretty good. That's a good job by you. That, that, that was, uh, that, that you, you did it kind of perfectly because you didn't undercut my, my shocking number, but you got close enough. So that was, uh, that was very well <laughs> Worked done. out great for the hashtag content. And, and if anybody is wondering if people are just always down on their finances like that, in February of 2020, 37% of people said their finances had gotten better versus a year ago. 42% said that uh, the finances were about the same. 
Um, so no, this is, this is, uh, this is a thing. <laughs> this is, there's a lot of pain out there. I don't mean to laugh at it and be glib about it, but to be, yeah, at, to be clear, I'm not in pain. Yeah. Um, like I, I there's feel people very... getting squeezed. You know, there are people in pain. There are people getting squeezed. It's just, it's not a good situation. Uh, it, to have 10%. I know this is one poll, but I think you're going to find the same thing if you look around the polls right now. Only ten percent well, of people. It's not even that. Like people's stocks, crypto, etc., are also down twenty five, thirty percent from their peak right now. So, like, yeah. they the money they have is worth less, and they have less of it. Yeah, and it's now at a, a high since they started the tracking poll of fifty four percent of people say their financial situation has gotten worse uh, versus a year ago. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's a legit factor when it comes to this discretionary spending. I think the bigger question when it comes to sports is whether once people fall out of the habit, they're out of the habit for good because they, well, what they grow you hope is that the wages catch back up. But by the way, I do think the poli- the MLB's foray into politics that run counter the majority of their fans might also be a factor in just how their fans feel about the brand. Maybe, but those Braves games look pretty lit. Yeah. And that, yeah, the Braves games where they, they, they're this outpost where they actually do the tomahawk chop unapologetically, um, as opposed to every day. Like, I don't think like two weeks go by where I don't see someone say, we got to get rid of the tomahawk chop. What are we doing? (laughs) They just continue unencumbered. That, that will fix, um, the poverty uh, on reservations around America when they when they prevent these uh, red assed Braves fans from doing the job it will uh, it will just magically make things better somehow obviously um, yes versus the Cleveland not Indians anymore who are now the Guardians and I think have just further alienated themselves from their from their fan base but that's a whole other conversation for another time Ryan uh, is there anything you want to plug before we wrap this thing up. <sighs> I don't know if I want to give away my feature that I'm working on or not. On, I on have, mini, on mini I have, I, I have one or two <laughs> scoops coming. Yeah. Um, this week that media scoops, um, one of them is like very complicated. And I hope I nail it down. One of them is scheduled for tomorrow mm. morning. Um, uh, but I have a feature that I'm very excited. All right. I I um I did an interview with Kendrick Perkins today. I would be I would want to read that. And that. he has a a side hustle going that he says he will make more money from in the next five years than he makes at ESPN, and I think that he's going to be a million dollar a year close to it guy at ESPN, mm. and so. And this, it's a fascinating business that like requires um, there's for for the location where it's based. Only him and other three other people know the location. They guard the secret with like their lives. What? Because they don't want to get robbed. Okay, I'm into this. All right. Well, we've got some great stuff coming out from Ryan over here. Two. Two scoops of the trek over here. So be on the lookout for that. I, of course, will be on Substack. Number one sports newsletter in number America. Number one. Ladies and gentlemen, subscribe today. You know, paid subscriptions. I'll have the uh, narrated version of Schefter out tomorrow, hopefully. And uh, the podcasts have been doing well. I'm excited. I need to start. We've, we've, we're, we've been on a good run on these, too. That's oh, two yeah. straight weeks that I've been pretty happy about. Yeah, yeah. You know, other people go to sleep in the summer. They do their vacations. We just sharpen, sharpen, iron sharpening iron over here. Uh, take care, everybody. Have a wonderful summer. We will be back next time, folks. All right. Good job by you. Good job by you.